I threatened a few of the young people with memory verses so um, they won't know when to not pay attention. And uh, so I'll just keep y'all hanging. Just keep, when I call on you, you'll know. I'm Bright Brother Scott. And that this is a rerun for a few of you. For that, and I'm sorry if you've heard it before, but uh, I asked a few of you, and y'all could not remember it. So that doesn't—I'm not sure if that means I didn't do a very good job the first time, but I couldn't really remember it either. So, but today or this evening, what I'd like to do is uh, consider the prophet Samuel, and of course, most of us. They've grown up in the truth uh, from our early childhood. We remember the story about how his mother, Hannah, desired greatly to have a child. And this desire for her was so fervent that she went and prayed before the temple in tears. And, of course, this action was mistakenly identified by Eli, the high priest at that time, as an exhibition of, of drunkenness. And much to his surprise, you know, she pointed out that he was mistaken. And in her discussion, he realized that she had a great faithfulness to Yahweh's commands. And therefore, he then encouraged Hannah by answering her, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant you your petition that you have made to him. Now Samuel, now I've thrown a few things up. I'm, I haven't, I just prepared these slides this morning, so they're not real fancy. But since I was bringing up some names and some meanings, I thought it might be a benefit to you. Samuel was born to Hannah and a man named Elkanah during the priesthood of Eli and possibly during the period of Samson's judging of Israel. Now, Samuel's name means given of El. Okay? Given of El, or asked of El, and maybe even heard of El. His father's name, Elkanah, signifies God has obtained, God, or El, has obtained, and Hannah's name indicates favored or favored one. So one, just by looking at the names of these three individuals, can see how properly they applied to the history and the lessons which were lived out in each of their lives. Now, although Elkanah had children from another wife, Penaniah, or Penina, which her name meant a pearl, Yahweh displayed favor upon Hannah for her obedience and her faithfulness. And upon her request, he heard her plea for a child, and he did provide her a son, or a son of promise. And of course, we all remember, in response then, Hannah 
reciprocated this favor back to Yahweh and dedicated her son, this firstborn son to her, completely to Yahweh's service. And in so doing, then, we know that God did receive a very righteous and a lifelong servant to him. Now, this family... Uh-oh. i got to remember how to make this thing work. Controller is different than what I'm used to. Okay. Now this family lived in the place called Ramathim Zophim. And the name there of that place indicates the double height of watchers. And this place was found in Mount Ephraim, which was located in the tribe of Benjamin. Now, of course, even Ephraim has an interesting meaning with his name, meaning double fruit or fruitfulness. And, of course, remember Benjamin's name means son of my right hand. All these names are very applicable, or all the meanings of these names are very applicable to the man Samuel, who later in his life would move to Shiloh from these parts and Ramathim Zophim when he was just a young boy. And later, as we continue through our remarks, you'll see how the application of a double watcher or a double fruit and son of my right hand will make itself more evident or reveal itself maybe more properly. Now, the duties that Samuel would perform as he was dedicated to the service of Yahweh and to the into the responsibilities or under the responsibility of Eli, they would perform, uh, they would fit well with his family occupation. For really, uh, his family was of the Levitical tribe. This can be seen from the lineage which is provided to us in 1 Chronicles 6. Let's turn there. 1 Chronicles 6, and we'll read verses 34, and then I'm going to skip to verse 47. First Chronicles 6, 34, it's going through a family lineage here, speaks of the son of Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Eliel, the son of Toa. And if you continue to 47, it picks up the son of Mali, the son of Mushi, the son of Merari, which was the son of Levi. Their brethren, also the Levites, were appointed unto all manner of, of service of the tabernacle of the house of God. So we can see that you know, he was. this family should have been very familiar with the appointments and the duties related to the keeping of the tabernacle. It is also very likely that... Very likely that Samuel took upon himself of the Nazarite vow... But what is even more evident, though, is that his faithful mother dedicated his life early to the service of Yahweh. Under the law of dedication to the service of the tabernacle, 
was not required until a Levite reached the age of 25. But in the case of Samuel, Hannah waived her right over him as a youth. And as soon as he was weaned, his work for Yahweh began. This early dedication to the things of God, combined with a mother with a keen mind for the things of the Spirit, provide a beautiful type for us when we think about Jesus, the Son of God. Let's go to 1 Samuel 2, verses 18 and 19. First Samuel two eighteen says, But Samuel ministered before Yahweh, being a child, and girded with a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother made him a little coat and brought it to him from year to year, when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And let's skip. Now, compare this, speaking of you know, this mother which would yearly come up to check and minister to her child. Compare this with Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, verses 49 through 52. And he said unto them, How is it that you sought me? Wished ye not that I must be about my father's business? And they understood not the saying which he spake unto them. And he went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and was subject unto them. But his mother kept all these sayings in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom, and stature, and in favor with God and man. So we see then Samuel was raised as a priest, and such was God's calling for him. This was revealed to Samuel by the angel of Yahweh. And though the words which we're about to read are prophetical in nature as to apply to the Lord Jesus Christ, they had an incipient application in the life of Samuel. So let's turn to 1 Samuel 2, verse 35, and read that. 1 Samuel 2, 35. Here we read, And I will raise me up a faithful priest that shall do according to that which is in mine heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before mine anointed forever. Of course, we know this is speaking of Christ, but it yet has some, I think, application to the way that Samuel lived his life before Yahweh. Now, during Samuel's life, he was esteemed by God and men above, even above the priest Eli, which, who was the high priest of his day. But, of course, Samuel could not occupy this position as a high priest according to the law due to his, his lineage, family lineage. But, by the decree of Yahweh, we can think of Samuel much like we think of the man Zadok, a just man who was recognized for his obedience 
and his faithfulness unto Yahweh. Samuel is a man in Israel's history who approaches the high rank of even Moses, as foretold by the prophet Jeremiah. Let's look at Jeremiah 15, verse 1. Jeremiah 15, verse 1. Then, the, then saith Yahweh unto me, Though Moses and Samuel stood before me, yet my mind could not be toward this people. Cast them out of my sight and let them go forth. So here we see Jeremiah esteems Moses and Samuel together. Let's now go back to 1 Samuel chapter 3. 1 Samuel 3 verse 19. And Samuel grew, and Yahweh was with him, and he did, he did let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan even to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was established to be a prophet of Yahweh. And Yahweh appeared again in Shiloh, for Yahweh revealed himself to Samuel in Shiloh by the word of Yahweh. In verse 1 of chapter 4, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out against the Philistines to battle and pitched beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines pitched in Aphek. So with these verses, we can then see how Samuel became a mediator between Yahweh and the people of Israel. And thus, the last of the judges becomes the first of the prophets. Now, it is at this stage of the life of Samuel that I would like now to focus. And the thoughts which I will now present are mostly my own. And the points that I will be making in regards to allegories or types, I have not necessarily been able to find in concurring resources. So I would be open to some of your thoughts afterwards if you'd like to approach me. But primarily, I would like for us to glean spiritual lessons from the three battles of Israel, which were against the Philistines that occurred during the life of Samuel. So let's first read about that first battle in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. We read, And the word of Samuel came to all Israel... And now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel, and when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. Now, the Philistines here, this word means a rolling or a migratory people. And these people descended from the man Mizraim and Ham, which is recorded to us in 1 Chronicles 1.12. It was during the period of the judges which they, when they, these people, the Philistines, established themselves in the land 
in consequence of which it received the title, the title that land did receive the title of Palestine based off the people that lived there, the Philistines. Or it was also termed the land of the wanderers, the land of the wanderers. This is an apt title, then, we could see for Israel after the flesh, if we would like to think of it in a spiritual connotation. You know, a people wandering about, you know, those of us that, and it, you know, any of the, it would represent anyone that seeks after the flesh, someone that is migratory or wandering without a leader. The word Aphek here where the Philistines assembled themselves comes from a word which means in sense of strength or a fortress. And we note here that 4,000 Israelites were slain in this battle. At this time in the history, the sin and disobedience of Israel came up before Yahweh. And this was primarily or a lot to have or the purpose of this was because of the leadership which was provided to the people at that time. And although we know Eli seemed to have a very good heart and desired to follow the commandments of Yahweh, he left much to be desired in the way he raised his two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. These two individuals had polluted the tabernacle and all the services that pertained to the worship of Yahweh. Therefore, the Israelites reaped its punishment for the wickedness and the disobedience which they all committed against Yahweh's commands. Let's read 1 Samuel 3.13. Go back a little bit. It says, For I have told him that I will judge his house forever for, for the iniquity which he knoweth, because his sons made themselves vile, and he restrained them not. We see also, we'll go back a little further, 1 Samuel 2, chapter, verses 22. Now Eli was very old and heard all that his sons did unto, unto all Israel, and how they lay with the women that assembled at the door of the tabernacle of their congregation. And he said unto them, Why do you do, why do you such things? For I hear of your evil dealings by all this people. Nay, my sons, for it is no good report that I hear. You make Yahweh's people to transgress. If one man sin against another, the judge shall judge him. But if a man sin against Yahweh, who shall entreat him? Or who shall entreat for him? Notwithstanding, standing, they hearken not unto the voice of their father, because Yahweh would slay them. Now, each of these individuals have quite interesting names. Hophni, whose names mean fists or both hands or a handful. And Phineas, whose name means the mouth of a serpent. So within this first battle, we see an allegory of the fall of man due to the inability to control one's fleshly desires. Although their father being Eli, one that is lofty, Israel turned their backs on his directions 
and yielded unto their, their own lusts. By the mouth of a serpent, that being Phineas, the, Israels, the Israelites took their hands, which are represented by Hophni, and disobeyed the voice of Yahweh. Entering into warfare without heeding the help of Yahweh, the Israelites were quickly defeated by the Philistines. And by their actions, they then brought condemnation upon their nation, or you may say their seed. And it would not be until 4,000 years later that this promised seed would manifest itself in the man, Jesus of Nazareth. We know that the Messiah was born under similar circumstances to that of the man of Samuel. Each man was born to a virtuous woman. Both Hannah and Mary offered similar prayers unto Yahweh, which manifested their love and their dependence upon Him. Within the prayers of Hannah and Mary, they revealed unto us their keen knowledge of Yahweh's plan of God, as specifically relating to a Redeemer. They understood the promises which were made to the patriarchs and the superiority of Yahweh's might over mankind. Each man, that is, each man, Samuel and Jesus, was born at a time when the sins of Israel were grievous in the eyes of Yahweh. Each man was born into a time when major changes were needed among the prophets and the priests of Israel. Now, the changes that were affected in Israel by the hand of Samuel is similar to the work of Christ in calling his disciples and later ushering them into the work of the apostleship. During Samuel's ministry, he traveled through the land, teaching the people the things of God, exhorting them to turn to Yahweh again. We know that others which were like-minded with him were attracted to his teaching, and these formed then into groups known in the Bible as the companies of the prophets. And over these individuals was Samuel considered the chief. So that the New Testament then refers to him as the first of the prophets in Acts 3.24. Let's look at that. It's Acts 3.24. It says, yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow, as many have spoken, have also foretold these days. So, though there were prophets before Samuel, he founded the order. Before his time, such prophets acted independently as individuals. But in his time, he organized them into a company with himself as their head. We read in 1 Samuel 19, verse 20. 1 Samuel 19, verse 20. It says, And Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing as appointed over them, 
the Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. So in doing this, Samuel began a movement that continued throughout biblical times. From the days of Samuel onwards, the companies or the schools of the prophets exercised considerable influence in Israel. Their duty was not limited to foretelling the future, but was more concerned with the revealing of the will of of Yahweh in contrast to the people's own ways and their doings. They were Yahweh's messengers amongst the people, making known His will, warning them of His judgments, rebuking the crimes of the rulers and the people, instructing men in doctrine, and also, of course, proclaiming His future promises. They acted as watchmen in the nation. They opposed error. They demanded that profession be consistent with performance. They cared nothing for human praise or human blame, nor were they swayed by fleshly opinion. They comprised a voluntary and a faithful minority in the midst of the nation. They manifested a stern and unyielding opposition towards apathy, anarchy, and apostasy. The entire description of the, of the company of the prophets is a scriptural portrayal which was guided by Samuel and is the allegory of the apostles of the first century Ecclesia, which were then molded and guided by the greater prophet, that being Jesus of Nazareth. So when we think of the company of the prophets and them being molded by Samuel, that's a type of Christ and his choosing out his apostles and molding and guiding them for their work that should follow after his, his death and his resurrection. Now let's go back to 1 Samuel chapter 4 and let's read the second battle that occurred. 1 Samuel 4 and we'll read verses 3 through 10. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has Yahweh defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh of the hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons, Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of Yahweh came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, What does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? They then understood that the Ark of Yahweh had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us, who will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods? These are the gods which struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. 
Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and every man fled to his tent. There was a great slaughter and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Note how interesting these events in the second, second battle point towards, I believe, the crucifixion of the Lord's anointed. We see in verse 3 that it was the elders of Israel. It was the elders of Israel that offered up the Ark of the Covenant to the warriors in order that they might be saved. Could a comparison verse of this be found in Matthew 16.21, in which we were told, From that time forth began Jesus to show himself unto the disciples, how that he must go into Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and of the chief priests and scribes, and be killed and be raised again the third day. It's quite interesting when we look at the statement given to us by one of the chief priests of Christ's day. Remember what Caiaphas said in regards to the offering up of Jesus when we read John 11. Let's look at John 11, verses 48 through 54. He says, if we let this, if we let him thus alone, all men will believe on him, and the Romans shall come and take away both our place and nation. And one of them, named Caiaphas, being the high priest that same year, said unto them, You know nothing at all, nor consider that it is expedient for us that one man should die for the people, and that the whole nation perish not. And this spake he not of himself. But being the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus should die for the nation, for that nation. And not for that nation only, but that he also should gather together in one the children of God that were scattered abroad. Then from that day forth they took counsel together for to put him to death. Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence into a country near to the wilderness, into a city called Ephraim. And there continued with his disciples. We read, or we read back in 1 Samuel 4, verse 5, that when the ark of the covenant of Yahweh came into the camp, all Israel shouted with a great shout so that the earth rang again. A similar parallel can possibly be drawn from Matthew 27, verses 24 and 25 which states, When Pilate saw that he could prevail nothing, but rather that a tumult was made, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. See ye to it. Then answered all the people and said, His blood be on us and on our children. Again, the children of Israel go to battle against the Philistines, confident that they were doing right or doing the right thing by carrying the ark into battle. 
Yet we know that they were breaking the covenant with Yahweh. They were blind to their own sins. They raised the question, why has Yahweh permitted us to be so smitten? A question to which they should have known the answer. And Samuel, later in his life, offers insight unto their errors. We read over in 1 Samuel 15, 22, this answer that he gave them. 1 Samuel 15, 22. And it wasn't just, in this case, you, know, you may say it was only to Saul, but all of Israel knew of this answer. And Samuel hath said, Hath Yahweh as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of Yahweh? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. It is then in this second battle, brethren, that deity allows the Philistines to capture and carry away the Ark of the Covenant. In this we see the lesson of the serpent power, sin in the flesh, bruising the heel of the seed of the woman. No longer was the symbol of Yahweh's presence now within the center of the nation of Israel. And just as upon the crucifixion of Jesus, the visible symbol of Yahweh's presence among men was then removed. In 1 Samuel 4.12 we note which we didn't read, but in 1 Samuel 12, 4.12, it should be noted that a man of Benjamin, or a son of my right hand, he brought back news to Shiloh of this defeat of Israel, and the death of, death of Hophni and Phinehas, and the capture of the Ark of the Covenant. It is upon this news of the Ark falling into captivity that Eli falls backwards from his seat, breaking his neck and therefore dying. Some interesting points to consider on this account is this. We see in verse 12 it says, And there ran a man of Benjamin out of the army, out of the army, and came to Shiloh the same day with his clothes rent and with earth upon his head. As we've said earlier, Benjamin denotes a son of my right hand, which then also could typify Christ being the man who now sits at Yahweh's right hand. We have that proof to us in Mark sixteen nineteen, which states, So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. We note that this man was out of the army, which makes us think of how Jesus separated himself from the position of taking up the sword or taking up arms at his first appearing. But he, knew, he noted that there would be a proper time for one, for one servant to fight for Yahweh's kingdom. We are told in Matthew 26, 52, Jesus said to him, Put away, put up again thy sword into this to his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. And we're told in John 18.36, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight 
that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now is my kingdom not from hence. It is interesting to note that this man on this very same day that the ark was captured came to the place of Shiloh. And Shiloh denotes a place of rest. We can see from that the type of Jesus obtaining his rest from the works of the flesh as he was rewarded with immortality from his father after his death and his resurrection. It's also interesting to note that this place, Shiloh, was located within the territory of Ephraim. Remember what we read earlier from John 11.54. In John 11.54, we find the word that says, Jesus therefore walked no more openly among the Jews, but went thence unto a country near the wilderness, unto a city called Ephraim, and there continued with his disciples. In this, brethren, we see a symbol how that when the Lord Jesus sits at the right hand of his Father, he is no longer walking amongst the Jews. But during a dispensation, when, when the truth is to be proclaimed unto the Gentiles, he still attends to his disciples as he would reside in Ephraim. A name which means double fruitness or fruitful in the land of affliction. So it's this time when the, the gospel message is going to these Gentiles that his word is to be fruitful in the lands of affliction. Now this man that we were reading about that ran, he, it is noted that his clothes were rent. Which brings us back or makes us think about Jesus as he endured the scorn of the persecutions at his own crucifixion. But we also know that when one rents his clothes, it is a symbol of one's innermost feelings of disgust and sorrow. Of course, both would apply to Christ at the time of his death. You know, thinking of the disgust and the sorrow in the people of the nation of his his own family, the promised seed as they were putting him to death, and of course, the rending of his garments as he was hanging upon the stake. The last thing about this man that's interesting to note is that this man had earth upon his head, possibly indicating to us the fleshly nature, of course, that the Son of God was to endure, a trial that he would have to face during his own race or his own running towards the goal of glorification of his own Father in heaven. Let's now go to this third battle that Samuel witnessed. It's in 1 Samuel chapter 7. First Samuel 7, and we'll read verses 1 through 17. Then the men of Kirjath Jerem came and took the ark of Yahweh and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eliezer the son to keep the ark of Yahweh. 
So it was that the ark remained in Kirjath-Jerim a long time, and it was there 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after Yahweh. And then Samuel spoke to all the house of Israel, saying, If you return to Yahweh with all your hearts, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroths from among you, and prepare your hearts for Yahweh, and serve Him only, and He will deliver you from the hand of the Philistines. So the children of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroths, and served Yahweh only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel to Mizpah, and I will pray to Yahweh for you. So they gathered together at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before Yahweh. And they fasted that day and said there, We have sinned against Yahweh. And Samuel judged the children of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the children of Israel had gathered together at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel and when and went up against Israel. And when the children of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. So the children of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to Yahweh our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering unto Yahweh. Then Samuel cried unto Yahweh for Israel, and Yahweh answered him. Now Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. The Philistines drew near to the battle against Israel. But Yahweh thundered with a loud thunder upon the Philistines that day, and so confused them that they were overcome before Israel. And the men of Israel went out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and drove them back as far as below beth Car. Then Samuel took a stone and set it, up, set it up between Mizpah and Shin and called its name Ebenezer, saying, Thus far Yahweh hath helped us. So the Philistines were subdued, and that they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territory from the hands of the Philistines. And also there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. And he went from year to year on a circuit from Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel in all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there, for he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto Yahweh. This is the third and the final battle between Israel and the Philistines during the life of Samuel. This event, I think, is very notable. The nations of Israel, much like the state of natural Israel today, were a people still living in sin. We see that they worshipped false gods and yet and still required a strong leader. Someone likened to Samuel who would step forward and help them put away the strange gods which were among them. We see that it was not until they had been gathered together into a place called Mizpah 
which denotes or means a watchtower, that the Philistines then plotted against them, this nation of Israel. Fear of this mighty power was still in the hearts of the Israelites. Yet by the comfort and the instruction of Samuel, Yahweh in His mercy, He provided them protection and triumph for the Israelites by confounding this Philistine nation with a great thunder, as we see in verse 10. After confusing the, the confusing of the Philistines, the Israelites then pursued them and pushed them back as far as Beth Car, which is a place which means a house of pasture. Can we not, brethren, see in this wonderful event the allegory of the Gogian host that shall gather herself against the nation of Israel in the latter days? A nation which shall not be defeated by the hands of any man-made power, but only a nation or a host of nations that shall be confounded and pushed back by a miraculous power only coming from the hand of Yahweh. And just as the prophets have foretold concerning the work of the goodly horse and back the goodly horse in battle, that being Judah, as we read in Zechariah chapter 10. After the destruction of Gog, we know that the natural Israelites, in each occurrence, go forth to fight with the strength of Yahweh behind them. We see that despite his age, Samuel had moved with the attacking Israelites. Now in the thankfulness to the God who had won for them a such notable victory, he took a stone and he placed it as a memorial, calling the place or calling it Ebenezer, or meaning the stone of help, which means hitherto hath Yahweh helped us, he declares. This victory was so decisive. So much so that the Philistines never again invaded the land during the lifetime of Samuel. Thus, in the discharge of his public duties, we know that Samuel is not charged with a single fault in the Scriptures. So in that, once again, we see within Samuel an excellent type of our Redeemer, our coming King, who will lead a people against a nation or nations and push them out of the land. It is quite interesting how we read in the Scriptures of the peaceful days of this man, Samuel, as he judged Israel after this third battle. Can this not be compared to the verses in Ezekiel 34, which describe the years of peaceful rule that our righteous king, the son of David, will afford on this earth. So, when we think about this last battle, you know, think about what shall happen in the latter days. Let's reread verse, starting at verse 13. As we read these, place in your mind Christ as Samuel. Verse 13. 
So the Philistines were subdued, and they did not come any more into the territory of Israel. And the hand of Yahweh was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. And the cities which the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to the land from Ekron to Gath. And Israel recovered its territories from the hands of the Philistines. Also, there was peace between Israel and the Amorites. So Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life. He went from year to year on a circuit from Bethel, Gilgal, Mizpah, and judged Israel and all those places. But he always returned to Ramah, for his home was there. And he judged Israel, and there he built an altar unto Yahweh. You know, we long for that day, brethren, when we will see Christ push out those nations and restore this territory once again to the promised seed of Israel, to the promised seed of Abraham, when he will judge righteously, peacefully, when he will allow the saints to go from year to year and the people to go from year to year to worship before him and Yahweh. That's the day, brethren, we desire and we look forward to.